This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Stephanie Butnick, and I'm joined by my co-host, tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibovitz. Shalom to you. And Unorthodox West Coast Bureau Chief, Joshua Molina. Hi-ho. Happy to be here. And I like the new title. <laughs> it's, it's a promotion. Today on the show, we're bringing you an interview with the one and only Sarah Silverman. She joins us to talk about her new comedy special, Someone You Love. We're also bringing you the latest installment of The Archive, our series exploring the collection of the National Library of Israel. We're learning about the manuscripts of Ahmed Ibn Tamiya, who's one of the most influential thinkers in the history of Islam, and who might also have inspired some jihadists. Which, by the way, really, I think between Sarah Silverman and, like, jihadists, this has something for everyone. If you don't like one of these two things, you're not human. <laughs> We're over-delivering in this episode, let's be honest. <laughs> New York's hottest podcast. Joshua, what's going on? Yes, yes. Being home, I've gotten some inside dish from my parents who live here on the West Coast as well. Having listened to our episode in which we interviewed Antonio Pagliarulo about the evil eye, my dad informed me, and this is very exciting to me, apparently in my own family, we had I had a relative who had the evil eye, or so believed my great aunt Jean. My tanta Becky apparently had some sort of problem <laughs> with one of her, this is true, she had a problem with one of her eyes, God bless her, and may she rest in peace, and it was visible. You could see that she had something wrong with her eye, and my, her niece, my great aunt Jean, may she rest in peace. My Aunt Jean was sure that her aunt, Tante Becky, had the evil eye, and so she wasn't to be around the kids, certainly not around babies. And when she did finally visit the babies, my dad being one of them, my Aunt Jean tied a little red string around the crib. Wow, poor Tante Becky. I've got evil eye DNA. She took evil eye very, very literally, I have to say. Yeah. Yes. The most exciting thing about this news is that your parents are listening to the podcast. Oh, well, that's a, that was a gimme. That was a, for sure. What do they think? How do they think you're doing? Are they excited about this? Oh, they love it. They're happy with all three of us. You know, it's, it's hard to get an honest opinion from them because uh, <laughs> I can do little wrong. I love that. Once once again, the Libovai parents remain at the bottom of, of the food chain. Uh, my mother calls it a food cast. <laughs> and and it's convinced it's like, you know, just something that I did once or twice some some years back. But I can't get over this Tante Becky story. So she literally had resting evil eye face syndrome. Right, right. There was no escaping it. And her own niece, her own niece lived in fear of of what evil she could bring with her. Tante Becky. That was a that was a podcast killer, apparently. We're just done. <laughs> That's the show, folks. <laughs> There's no bouncing back from Tante Becky and her evil eye. There is bouncing back because I have my Israeli cousins in town. They come every few years and it's always a lot of fun. I was explaining to Edith, my almost two-year-old, she'll be two actually the day this podcast comes out. And I said, Edith, mommy's cousin Imbal is coming and Imbal is married to Daron and their kids, Neve and Noam, they're coming. You're going to meet them. And I was like, and they're from Israel. And she kind of like looks at me and I was like, yeah, Israel. And she goes, <laughs> she just looks at me with a very straight face. She goes, Grover Israel. Because oh. <laughs> she had read the Grover Goes to Israel book that I was like. <laughs> right. And I was like, honestly, you're right. Grover is Israel to you. <laughs> so literally. Oh, can I add? Been like, Grover Israel. <laughs> Grover Israel is the greatest Hollywood talent agent name ever. <laughs> this is my agent, Grover Israel. <laughs> but the best thing was they arrived with like a suitcase full of gifts, which was amazing. When you go the other direction, it's a suitcase full of electronics. But this way, it's a suitcase full huh. of amazing gifts. And one of the things they bring is a game 
called Taki. A game, you call it. Tis not a game. Is it a way of life in Israel, Taki? Tis a feat of strength. How How is it played? It's literally Uno. It's just Israeli Uno. How dare you? <laughs> sure. It's like saying that a Krembo is a Malamar. No, it's not. It's superior to Uno in every way. <laughs> it's so fun. It's heated. You yell, you this. There's all these rules that like... It's exactly that. It's Uno with yelling. And if you grew up in Israel in the 80s, and I suspect the 90s, this is literally it. This is what you did. If you weren't outside at pool or the beach or whatever, you were playing Taki. Not only do you yell, but like you're encouraged to suspect other people of cheating. You're encouraged to shove and push, demand to look at their cards. It's very high stakes and it's very kind of like feat of strength. And it's an amazing card game. Sold. <laughs> but it's it's very funny. So Daron was explaining to everyone how to play it. And there were like the rules. And then there were like other rules that weren't on the rule sheet. And my sister was like, are these real rules or is this just your family? No, they're totally. <laughs> yes. They're 100% real rules. Here's why they're real rules. They're real rules because it's Israel. So it begins like a socialist country. It's like, it's small. It's humble. We have a game called Taki. Then it becomes Startup Nation. And then they invent a game literally called uh, Super Taki, which has like 17 more rules. Which basically. I think we were playing Super Taki. Basically mirror like the country's nuclear ambiguity policies. <laughs> like. I can't tell you if I have the same flush color. Or maybe I can. And there's a, it's amazing. And then when you get down to your last card, you have to say, this is my last card. You have to Correct. say it in Hebrew. As in Uno. In Uno, you declare. In Taki, you shout. Yeah, no, you, you literally, how do you say that in Hebrew, Leo? There what were, do you shout? Chad? Well, you could, I think technically you could shout whatever you want, as long as you're shouting. It's but then, So how do you differentiate that from the rest of the gameplay? That's so the game. confusing. <laughs> it's so confusing. Hold on. I actually took, I took a video of this, so I'm going to play it. I would watch this show. Plus, like me not knowing, like it's and the Americans being like, ma, ma. Anyway, By the way, forget, it was forget Twitch, forget watching people play video games. I want to watch Israeli <laughs> right. playing Taki Israeli's all playing day Taki. long. So we need to make a Taki tournament, an Orthodox Taki tournament. When you're back in New York, Josh, we'll all play it. I'm absolutely in. I will destroy every single one of you. Or maybe I won't because this Friday, I'm going to be engaging in a very non-Israeli tradition. It's a new, it's a new tradition. What I'm going to do is something that I believe about 4 million other Americans are going to do this Friday. Have you heard of Barbenheimer? Yes. Mm, no. Oh, Barbie and Oppenheimer. I'm, I'm, it's a portmanteau. Tis the custom of watching both of them on the same day, on the day of their release. But you should have to see each dressing up in the other movie's style. That's, that's exactly right. You should wear a Barbie outfit to Oppenheimer and a fedora to Barbie. And also telling your children that they're seeing the other movie when, I mean, like, hey, this is a funny movie about a, about a plastic <laughs> toy. I am so excited. But there's a lot of discussion whether you do Barbie first and then Oppenheimer. We kind of took the easy way out. We're going to see Oppenheimer first and then Barbie. But it's it's going to be glorious. So the world will end and then it'll be reborn. How much movie is that? That's about nine hours. It's a lot of movie. But then again, we just saw the Mission Impossible movie, which is also nine hours. But amazing nine hours. What was, what was your take on that? They really wanted that key is my takeaway. <laughs> Boy, did they want that key. <laughs> I love that the plot of this whole thing 
It's like we have to get a key. And the guys like go to right. go to like office uh, deep. Have another one made. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's not hard. I thought it was amazing. This is good because I don't need to see the movie now. Tom Cruise makes his own keys. <laughs> Comes to see Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One. You gotta give it to him. Like he, he's really into it. It's really earnest about this. Like I'm not phoning it in. I will actually drive a motorcycle off a freaking Alp for you guys. Yeah. I, if I had his money, I'd be living in a protective bubble. I would not be taking any risks. You know, I just had like a, a thought inspired by a Talmud page we were reading this week, as one does, obviously. <laughs> There's something really great. Like, he's so the anti-James Bond. James Bond, just like, you know, he's, as the name implies, he's like bound by his obligations. He has to do whatever he's told. He's an instrument of killing. Ethan Hunt has a mission and he could choose whether or not to accept it or not. And his choice has to do with how he feels about his friends. It's a really kind of Jewish form of superhero. Also, the name Ethan to me suggests, I know it's not <laughs> technically, but like Eitan or Mighty in Hebrew. I'm, I'm going to go with, it's a very Talmudic superhero. And I love him. I'd like to see a short, a short film that's uh, just a montage of the missions he turned down. That could be funny. <laughs> that's right. It's like a Taco Bell run. Nope, I'm not going to do it. Right. You've been tasked with shopping at Glotmart the day before Pesach. Nope. <laughs> no not, way. Not, not doing that. <laughs> not going near that. You got anything else? I feel like the thing we need to talk about re-Barbie is that there's this big profile of Greta Gerwig in the Times Magazine. And I was reading it, reading it, reading it. And then literally like the last three paragraphs, I don't know if you guys saw this, but, but she was like, and you know, so she grew up Catholic in Sacramento. That's that's Lady Bird. That's the whole thing, Greta Gerwig. And she's like, our very good friends growing up were observant Jews. We would spend all our time running around their house. And on Friday nights, we would do Shabbat with them. And the dad would bless his kids. And then he would put his hand on my head and bless me too. And she's like, and I want Barbie the movie to feel like that. I want to feel like being blessed on Shabbat. And I was like, I see that. this took a turn. <laughs> That's amazing. We don't even need to be doing this. The Gentiles got it from here, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I will say that the best Barbie reference I had, I was at an event with my dear friend Adam Rubenstein, formerly of the Times, and now a, a free person with, with a real job. Uh, <laughs> and I said, hey, I'm going to see the movie Barbie. And he looks at me and deadpan says, I'm really happy they're finally making a good Hollywood movie about Klaus Barbie. Uh, if if you're not that's laughing right now, that's the Nazi guy from Rat Race. What right is it? They go to the Barbie. He had an incredible yeah, arch to yeah, incredible arch to his foot. It slipped right into right into him. It is the the SS officer, the most famous SS officer of of Vichy France, the butcher of Lyon. And I think it would be Greta Gerwig could have made a great boy. Am I stealing that for a tweet? That that, that will be that will Margot Robbie is Klaus Barbie. <laughs> and weirdly, that movie is not at all inspired by Shabbat. Oh, actually, it kind of is inspired by Shabbat, but in the other like, direction. No, in, in, in that <laughs> version, you know, the death march is just to get in their steps. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and now I've killed the podcast. <laughs> and, now, and thank you all for listening. It's been a great run. <laughs> shall, we, shall we continue this into the depths? Uh, should, we, should we go to News of the Jews? Yeah, in case anyone's still listening. <laughs> why not give him, give why him, not give him some news? Yeah. News of the Jews. Oh, yeah. N-O-T-J News of the Jews. Okay, Liel, big news from your homeland. 
tell us what the latest innovation in high tech nation is. So Israel, as as you may know, is known for some tremendous bakeries. It has a bakery called Breads, which is currently making it big in the United States. It, of course, has pita, has challah, it has all kinds of delicious pastries. But now something new has arrived. The greatest thing to hit Israel since sliced bread is sliced bread, which is now <laughs> being marketed as, and I'm not making any of this up, American style bread. It has stars and stripes on the cover. It contains 73% or so more sugar and chemicals than the actual natural delicious stuff baked in bakeries. And it's like 30% more expensive and people cannot have enough of this shit. It's insane. I don't understand. How how had that not reached their shores by now? It's 2023. The, the, I know. the whole world tied. That's how I feel when I, I've been to Paris a couple of times during horrible heat waves. And I want to say to people, hey, I, I can make a million dollars here. They've invented a machine that blows cool air. <laughs> you guys, are, you ought to think about buying one. But what is this machine? How, I, how does that happen? <laughs> well, here's the thing. First of all, a sandwich, a proper sandwich, Reb Molina, is a pita. You take a pita, you stuff it oh. with something. Now, if you are a barbarian and do not wish to have a pita, you could have, you know, sourdough bread, you could have challah, like the most amazing sandwich in the shuk in Tel Aviv is schnitzel in challah. So you slice two big like, chunks Whoa. of challah. Sounds it's so good. Oh, phenomenal, God, phenomenal, phenomenal. It's also a great place because the name of this place is Ishtabach, which is, may his name be blessed, but also Ishtabach, a man who is a cook. Oh, brilliant. Very, very clever. But but in that reality, why the fuck would you need American-style sliced bread, which is not really bread? Apparently, there we have it. So it's not that it's not that it hadn't arrived; it hadn't been embraced until now. Correct, and it hasn't been marketed okay. as American style. Yes, that was the key. That was the hook. Look, when I was growing up, we had a week which actually lasted a month <laughs> called Shavua America, the American week in the supermarket. Uh, there was one chain of supermarkets when I was growing up, so it wasn't that hard, in which we were given access to exotic things like peanut butter and root beer, which literally did not exist. Fluff, like really great big innovations. And so I think you just have to say something is American in Israel for Israelis to go, Maze, Papa John's must be very good. I will buy the pizza. I do have to say, Noah, my teenage Israeli cousin, I call them all my cousins. They're not They're not actually my cousins, but they're like my second cousin, whatever they're they are. They're all the cousins. They're cousins. all cousins. But Noah, I'm like, he really wants the American fast food. He really wanted sushi. So we went for sushi this weekend and then he really wants fast food. Good so old American sushi. Know, yes, exactly. <laughs> I think my dad was taking him to like KFC today because he was like very interested in trying that that fried chicken. Because like, I, what do they have? They have Mac- McDonald's there, and what else? What other fast American fast food? The Burger Ranch. Are there, is there? Are yeah. there kosher McDonald's there? Yes. And can I say something provincial? Joshua, every time I'm in Israel, I go to the kosher McDonald's because I never have it otherwise. It's amazing. Yes. It's like, ah. And you yes. can like be seen in a McDonald's, That's like, which true. I feel like is something right. Lower. Right. You don't. <laughs> Wait, Leo, what did you used to order at Burger King when you were hungry and driving? Well, before they did the great mitzvah of having the the Impossible Whopper, which is just terrific, which they have now, which is just the greatest. I would drive, Josh Cross, our producer, will testify to it. He was with me. We were, it was two or three in the morning. Uh, We pulled into a Burger King and I had basically a Whopper with everything except the meat. 
which is good. Ah. <laughs> you know, it was a bun with cheese and lettuce and sauces and it hadn't touched any griddle or anything. Sure. It's great. Yeah. In and out will do a similar thing. Yeah, they did. And it's good. They, I mean, you get the side eye when you order it. Like, what's wrong with you? What are you doing here? <laughs> But this this is this actually leads us to our other food related story of the week. And that is that the U.S. approves the nation's first lab grown meat for sale at restaurants. And this is a a very big deal for those who operate in the world of kashrut. Right. This sort of paves the way for the possibility of meat that would typically not be kosher becoming a, a, a viable option for kosher keepers. Presumably it removes all the laws about how to butcher meat. And in addition to that. Would lab-grown pig be considered not meat oh. and therefore kosher, right? And or can you have a lab-grown burger with cheese? So the latter question has been answered because a bunch of Israeli rabbis, including some super big names like Stav, Shalo, etc., like heavy hitters, were asking this question. And it's such an incredibly fascinating halachic question because the question you're actually asking And there are, I should say, this will come as a shock, but there is a disagreement about what is lab-grown meat. Some rabbis say, guys, lab-grown meat is meat in which you take a cell and you grow it in a lab. The thing that you need to understand about this sentence is that you took a cell from the animal. The idea is that the cell's halachic status is precisely the same as the animal's halachic status, meaning it doesn't matter if the cell then becomes an animal naturally or becomes an animal or meat. So you're ruining this forever. Lab, it is. But isn't there still... also a ratio thing? Aren't there things like if your soup, if two drops of something that's not kosher gets into your soup? Interestingly enough, that doesn't actually play a big part here. I mean, a cell is so small. Come on. <laughs> it's a kazayat. Then there are rabbis who say, guys, it's a total new thing because the process of growth is in a lab. Therefore, this is clearly not an animal. Therefore, Pasect the rabbis. Not only is it kosher, but it's also parv. It's not actual <laughs> meat. It's the same exact thing as, say, beyond meat or possible burgers. Therefore, you could totally enjoy it with cheese. Which leads us to the interesting first question that Rabbeinu Joshua Molina asked. What about pig? As soon as we started figuring out that there is a permutation in which or possibly we will someday create lab-grown pork... Some rabbi said, guys, it is just as it has been foretold because our ancient wise rabbis said, and there's a whole debate about the status of that discussion too, which we don't have to get into it right now, that pork in Hebrew is called chazir because it comes from the same exact root of chazar or chazara or return because the destiny, the fate of the pig is to return, to do teshuva and to become pure. And therefore, here we are. Lab meat actually bringing about something close to the end of days in which the chazir, the pig, has chazar, has returned and is now indeed purified and kosher. Back on the derech. That's beautiful. Can I pivot and ask you whether there are issues, though, of ma'arat ayin, that I'll be eating a lab-grown, I'll be eating a lab-grown pork chop on the corner of Wilshire (laughs) and La (laughs) Cienega, and somebody will walk by and think that I'm eating unkosher meat. 
And is that is it therefore is that not a problem? Wait, Marit Ian. Okay, this is the when someone when you're doing something that looks this is like sitting in a, a McDonald's that maybe I didn't know was kosher. Okay. Right. If a man wears a toupee, can he consider that a yarmulke or is it a problem because <laughs> other people think he's not wearing a yarmulke? Ian, it's the eye. It's all about like we're on theme. Although I'd say Marit Ian is the greatest NPR host name ever. <laughs> Marit Ian. National <laughs> <laughs> Public Radio. But no, Marit Ian and Grover Israel bring you <laughs> It's it's so funny because I was actually at this place right that opened your office. It's called Plant Burger, but it's like missing a bunch of vowels. Right. And I was sitting there and I was thinking about all this. And then two tables down were, were two Sikh guys in turbans and the bracelets. And I was like, oh, and I'm literally on my phone Googling like, are Sikhs vegetarian? And then I, I check out their website because I started thinking about it like, oh, could this be the place that brings everyone together? And then on their website, they're like, we're 100 uh, percent IKC kosher, which is some distinction. They're halal. Like. It's actually maybe this is the future of like co-religionist thing where communities that don't eat meat, communities that need to eat meat bound by certain prescriptions. Like, could this be it? Can I bring a soul down? Don't ruin this, Liel. <laughs> well, which, why would tonight be different from any other night? <laughs> the answer the answer is maybe. But at the same time, I don't think I will ever bring myself to eat lab-grown pork, because even if Marit Ayn wasn't a thing, and even if the, the Heksher was there, even if everything was okay, there's something so foundational about, you know, refraining from this, that even if all the boundaries and the obstacles were removed, I still think we should go with with no. I'm here, I'm machmir, get used to it. <laughs> ha. Well, that, that reminds me now of a story. My mom and I were flying to Israel together, and I guess we were flying fancy style because they were paying. And the first thing after we sat down or after we were aloft, the flight attendant served us shrimp cocktails. No, and we looked what? at each other like, what Hold is on. going on? Of on course, El-Al? Now, of course, it, on El Al, it turned out, of course, to be compressed haddock or some sort oh. of kosher oh, fish wow. with, the density, with the density of plutonium. <laughs> but it looked like, you know, it was hanging off the glass like a shrimp cocktail. And we thought, this is what El Al feels they have to do for their clientele. <laughs> is give you the transgressive uh, illusion of eating a shrimp cocktail. And it did feel somehow wrong. Wow. That's insane. And also, I feel like it sends the wrong message. It's like, we're Jews flying to Israel. You know what we don't need to eat? Like, this is the one place where shrimp <laughs> right. cocktail right. need not be on the menu. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like, like, this is a club that will have us as members. It doesn't need shrimp cocktail and, like, gin martinis. Like, let's do something else. Just many years ago, um, perhaps they've ended the practice, but we were we were, we were, were alarmed. I will add, apropos al al and, and food, I am flying al-al to Israel on Tisha B'Av next Thursday. <laughs> oh, great. The meal service should be... Mwah. Really? What what should the meal service be on Tisha B'Av? Should it just be a, worse An empty box. Or, an right? empty box that <laughs> so you have to pay for. <laughs> some ashes. So, so wait, how does that work? Like, do you have to fast until you've crossed over like the meridian? Like when you... That is the other question I'm asking. So I'm addicted to this app called Maizmanim, which tells you precisely when you have to pray, which is a real big problem when you fly because you pray according to where you are and how can you figure it out? So... You send them uh, your your flight. Is there any? Is there a route that keeps you consistently ahead of the praying, so you never yes, have to yes. pray? Yes. Yes. Oh, <laughs> we're Jews. Of course, there is. You can plan. You're like, I'm sorry. I know. I was in Australia. Uh, no, Been on a plane I, for five years. I think there is a pretty good situation in which I am fasting for about thirty nine hours this year. I have to figure it out. <laughs> 
everyone is going to be so grumpy when they get off that flight and have to jockey for their luggage at Ben-Gurion. So like the world's worst activity is going to be made so much hangrier. Grumpy passengers getting off an LL flight? I can't imagine that. <laughs> oh, and They're on like, top of it hungry. all, on top of it all, the airport is now frequently shut down because the, the democracy protests have the now protests. taken over the airports. So it's going to be a great flight is, is all I'm saying. So I guess no shrimp cocktail for you, Liel. I'll bring, I'll bring my own. But I'm sure our listeners have a lot to say about all of this. Tell us what you think about lab-grown meat, the possibilities of kosher meat, whether you'd ever eat a fake pork something. Emails unorthodoxatabamag.com. Leave us a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. As discussed, this line goes straight to Joshua Molina's child at home in New Rochelle. And hopefully, hopefully someone checks the messages there. <laughs> I don't think he's the son of God I think he was still a nice boy If you ask yourself what would Jesus do We'd say give the Jew girl toys Give the Jew girl toys I'm delighted to say that our Jew of the Week is my dear friend Sarah Silverman. She is, of course, a brilliant comedian, a writer, an accomplished actress. And you should know that her comedy special, which is wonderful, it's called Someone You Love and just recently aired on HBO. I urge you to listen to it. She also is the host of her own fabulous podcast called The Sarah Silverman Podcast. Here she is, Sarah Silverman. This is so exciting to say, uh, Sarah Silverman, welcome to Unorthodox. It's good to be here. Hooray. You and I are old friends. That's right. Liel and Stephanie, new friends. Josh, old friend. Do you know when we met? Do I remember when we met? Yes, on the set of Bullworth. That is correct. Which <laughs> I was there for five weeks and I'm not in it at all. You can see my shadow in one scene. Josh is actually in it. I'm briefly, myself, I have a small role, but I was there for six months. I was single when we started shooting and I brought my wife and baby to the premiere. Yeah. So so we hung out a lot, even though we had small roles in this movie. We were around a lot and we got to be friends. Yeah, because we just did nothing all day. This was like the end of an era where like Warren Beatty just wanted all the actors in the whole cast there every single day in case he wanted to go to this scene or this scene or this scene. And it was like Halle Berry and Don Cheadle and all these people that like he's just paying. He's just having the studio pay for them to be there every single day for a very long time. That was the most money I've ever made. And I'm not in it. It was a very good job. And it was a lot of fun. You tortured me, though. I, that I don't remember. <laughs> Please you go ahead. You were so mean. How so? Because I had one line and, and he wouldn't let us see what anything was or see the Rusted, or I didn't get to see the script or anything. I just saw like what my lines were. So all I knew was something falls and my line is watch out. <laughs> and he's picking it up and Annette Benning's there watching and you're standing behind them and the camera's on me. My heart is beating out of my chest and all I have to say is watch out. But I don't know if it's watch out or if it's like, a, oh, watch out. Like, I don't know the stakes at all. And he's, and then I'm asking him and he goes, it's just two words, watch out. It's very hard to just say watch out and you don't want, so I go, watch out. 
And then I'd look over at Warren Beatty and right behind his head is Josh's head. And he's just lip syncing the word. <laughs> wow. <at me. laughs> and I'm like completely melting down. It may have been me because I was actually in the movie, but it also may have been Annette Benning who wasn't in the movie. No, no, no. She was visiting her husband sitting next to him. It was you and you were standing behind them, terrifying me, <laughs> mouthing to me the word wow. That sounds like, yeah, that does sound like something I would do. We also had a big pop-out trailer that we could all hang out in. And yes, with Warren like a chef. hired a chef, a chef who would get me kosher chicken. <laughs> and... <laughs> Cook for me. And by the way, as Sarah said, we didn't do anything. So I just sat around eating like an animal, all this free, great food. And I think I gained 15 pounds over the course of the shooting, which was six months. All we did was hang out in this giant trailer with a chef. Yeah. It was shot largely in chronological order. So you can see me gain weight with each scene because it takes place over the course of a day and a half. And it's like, how did that guy gain 15 pounds in one day? Since we're on the topic of meanness, though, I want to say that Sarah's plenty mean to me since Bullworth. We play in a ridiculous, low stakes, horrible but fun poker game at our house every now and then. And once on Passover, they were ordering food. I think it was pizza. I, of course, explained that I couldn't order the pizza. And Sarah, of course, used the opportunity to humiliate me. Well, oh, you can't eat the because the man with the white beard and the sky doesn't think you should have pizza these eight days. And I was like, <laughs> leave me alone and play cards. So she's mean too. I'm like a modern day Herod. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, you are. <laughs> I heard you on a different podcast and there was a mention that you have a sign at your party or at your apartment that says no podcast solicitations. Is this true? I used to and maybe in the future also will. But I, I always lived in an apartment, this apartment, and it had this incredible roof. And it's all old people that live there and they don't know what they have. Like they let me rent out the whole roof for like a hundred and fifty dollar deposit. <laughs> I'd have these huge parties on the roof. And I just found that sign in the garage, but there's, I made a huge sign and it just says, please, no podcast solicitations <laughs> because it's a great party where you're going to know a couple people. You're going to meet a few people. It's like a, you know, it's just awesome. But like the one thing that would ruin it is you meet someone, you have a great, you know, rapport and, and then they go, I'd love to have you on my podcast. <laughs> Which is exactly what we did. <laughs> oh, well, but I wanted to come It's on. a very aggressive thing to ask. It's like asking someone to read your screenplay. That's the worst. That's ended so many friendships in my life. Ugh. So Josh is our new co-host on Unorthodox. So this is like very oh. exciting for us to have him and for also for us to be like, we're learning about him through all the people he knows. So do you have anything like really embarrassing about him? Oh, God. Um, Besides the fact that he keeps Passover? Well, I'll just say the meanest thing he did to me. This is how I learned to lock my phone was that um, I went, I had the nerve to get up and pee at the poker game. And when I came back, I had tweeted, <laughs> Josh had taken my phone and tweeted as me, just, I'm horny. <laughs> oh, you were so mad. I'm sweating, actually, remember? <laughs> I made you make a video saying that. that yes, that's right. I had to record a confessional video explaining that I had taken... You were mad. I was like, wow, I've actually made her mad. I never crossed that line before, I don't think. I mean, <laughs> you totally crossed that line before. Like, I've been not talking to you in my head for like every once in a while for like a year here and there. Oh, you got to let me know. 
Because I would, I would record a video to make it better anytime. I don't want to lose you in my life. Okay, so now I have to ask who, who else is in this in this in this poker game? Because like I'm imagining like Steven Spielberg and like Scorsese. Oh, it's a sixty dollar buy-in. I'm always the poorest person at any of these kinds of Hollywood games. You're not but the I want to play first run in this one. That's true, uh, <laughs> but times are hard lately. Uh, I, I hate playing with rich people for low stakes because when you play with rich people for low stakes, everyone's in at the end of the hand. And they if you just have good cards, in. you win. If you have bad cards, you lose. And skill is essentially weeded out of the Well, there's process. just nothing worse but, than when, like, there's a showdown between Ham and Mark Cohen. And you're just like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, you got to root for Mark Cohen. You got to root for Coco. In that <laughs> yeah. I do remember and the first time I played with John Ham at your house, after the game finished, he started sweeping up. And I was like, dude, we, the rest of us men already look bad next to you. Oh my god! So you he, have to he you have to get a broom and sweep. In the dishwasher. He, he <laughs> what an asshole! What a bastard! He just rubs okay, your face and how much Lewis better boy. he is than you in every way. I'm not only a thousand times more handsome than you. I'm more helpful cleaning up. <laughs> I mean, can you can you believe the goyim and their crazy ways? It's just exactly. Just dare they be menches? Your new comedy special, someone you love recently aired on HBO. It is very funny and it is so incredibly Jewish. It is very Yay. Jewish. We love it. We love it. I feel like everything you said, I was like, this is amazing. This is just, this is for us. And it's probably my Jewiest special, which is, you know, that's pretty Jewy, I guess. We're get, we're pulling you back in. I know. Well, touring, it, it, I realized like, first of all, even if I'm in like West Virginia, every Jew from like a three hour radius will come, you know, and then that makes me worried. Like if someone was like, I want to kill all the Jews and whatever, (laughs) Pensacola, but how do we get them all into one place? (laughs) But um, Silverman's coming to town. But then it's hard if there aren't Jews in the audience because they, the audience wants, doesn't, they're not sure if they should laugh at these very bad Jewish jokes. I mean, bad, I don't, not bad, but. Not no, either. I know exactly what you're saying. If there's something, so there's sometimes non-Jews want to turn to a Jew and go, can I laugh at this? Right. It's like there's, they're like deferential. So it's like a, you know, it's not as hard of a laugh. So it's like really, it's a real FUBU special. <laughs> so I, I watched it. I watched it for the first time with, with, with friends and family. Second or third time I watched it, I was with a bunch of non-Jewish friends. And then you said something like, you know, uh, the alleged Holocaust. And I'm, cracking up even though it's like the ninth time I heard this joke and then I look Aww. up and literally the other people in the room are looking at me like is is was that a joke I was like yeah what's wrong with you that was an amazing fucking joke they're like that that is that not offensive I was like guys like wh- what are we doing here like do you not why is it so much less funny when Roseanne does it? <laughs> yeah I, that that was a hard joke to track Right. <laughs> you had to really like find it. Are you conscious of it if you're doing this type of set in a place where there's not a lot of Jews? Like, is it does it feel different for you up there? I've never been like a comic that's like, I really need to do just the Jewish circuit, you know. But um, this special was like, you know, the Jews in the audience, like I needed them to make it OK. <laughs> Did you paper the house with Jews? Well, they wouldn't pay for a ticket. Oh, <laughs> not full price. <laughs> No, no. This is the most anti-Semitic podcast. <laughs> Unorthodox. 
So I, I have a question about this because I have been a kind of hardcore fan from like beginning of your career. You're easily, you know, one of my top four favorite comedians. Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> so, uh, I go to the hotel, super fancy hotel, and I go to check in. Oh, and the lady at the front desk recognized me and she was like, oh, my God, I love you. You are in my top four all time favorite comedians. <laughs> and I was like... You know that I know that means I'm fourth, right? I'm not walking away from this like, ooh, maybe I'm second, you know? No. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, but, but we know what that means. That is a reference to the special everyone must go and watch. I grew up in Israel, and honestly, like, cultural, a lot of the cultural thing was completely lost to me because I didn't really get that there was anything particularly Jewish about like, I mean, I grew up in a Jewish state, so I kind of read everything as Jewish and I didn't really, watching American TV, which I did obsessively, I was like, whatever, man, this is just funny American TV. And you were like the first time I get, this person isn't just brilliant and funny. She's also very Jewish. Explain to me, why is it that I, like, I read you immediately as Jewish, but like when I read like Mel Brooks, it's like, oh, he's just a funny American comedian. How have you out-Jewed everyone else in my imagination? I have not, that's your, that's, that's, that's your that's on me. perspective. That's, yeah, right, because okay. like, I'm, I'm not out-Jewing Mel Brooks. He's I don't the know. King. That's, the world would implode if anyone out-Jewed Mel Brooks. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, but also that shows the beauty of, and I'm, I, I'm not speaking for Mel Brooks. I don't know his religious but that I am considered so Jewy and yet am godless. But that's the beauty of Judaism. You can be godless and still very Jewish. How does that work? What is the essence of a godless Jew? Culturally, ethnically, ethically Jewish. Although I used to hate when my brother-in-law would say, you're very ethically Jewish because like I always had boyfriends that were not Jewish and they were very ethical, you know? Like, But he got it from us is the point. Right. Golden rule. That's ours. Ethics? Have it reicha kamocha. Well, just uh, the quint- quintessence of an ethical life. Treat thy neighbor as thyself. Have it reicha well, kamocha. Well, Christian Love Jew. your neighbor as thyself. Only because they took our book. Old Testament. It's not old. It's the original. So let's bring the conversation up a notch. I was going to ask about failure, which is something that I'm so fascinated with. You know, Joshua, you're- A giant like, failure. Right. That's obviously why I said that. To be an actor, like there's so many places. In, and Sarah, you just mentioned it. Like you were on the set of a movie for so long and you're not in the movie. And I remember, <laughs> again, as a big fan, I'd be like, oh my God, there's this new pilot with Sarah Silverman. And, and then nothing happens at this thing. I was like, wait a minute. Where's this great, amazing show I've been promised with Sarah Silverman? And it doesn't materialize. So when you have projects that never come to fruition, is that something that kind of, you know, helps you grow and understand more about yourself? Or do you just treat it as whatever, man, sunk cost, it's dumb industry we live in, you win some, you lose some? The whole thing. It's like this, you go through the like stages of grief when you have a pilot and you like work, work so hard on it. And like, it feels like the whole world to you, which is of course that it's not, you know? And then, uh, you know, every shit I take. I think I'm putting gold in their laps and then they don't take it. You know, if they don't buy it, I'm like, you know, like to me, it's like they made the worst decision of their lives. <laughs> you know, like 
and then I get over it. Do you, do you get resentful though? Like, do you go and I be like, fuck you, Warren Beatty, like for not putting me in the movie? I would have made it so much better. No. Because that's how I would feel. No, I was, I didn't know what I was doing in that movie. I, I think he just wanted me around and it was still like the days where like a Warren Beatty could do that. Like, eh, let's put her in the picture. Maybe she'll be in it. Maybe she won't. She'll hang out. That's just your Jewish ethics talking. No, no. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm sure Josh has been in many pilots who that haven't gone. Thanks. <laughs> I bet Josh has had a ton of failure. But yeah. yeah, right. That's what you do with your failure that really defines you. You're not defined. Ideally, uh, we are not defined by our worst moments, but that our, what we do with those moments is what defines us. That is true. I feel like I'm AI because I consumed a bunch of information and then spit that gem out and it sounded smart, but it's an amalgamation of things I've heard. <laughs> How about Jewface? Can we segue into Jewface and to, I know you have strong feelings, and I think I just maybe... You, did you see about the new, the woman who's been cast to play Fanny Bryce in the national tour of Funny Girl is apparently a tremendous talent, incredible actor and singer, but she's not Jewish. And some people are not happy about that. I don't know how I feel anymore. I don't, I, I, listen, my, what, when I talked about it, my point was simply this. It wasn't even a point. I was noticing that in this time, where representation is so crucial, so front and center, so politicized and so important, it does not seem to be the case with outwardly Jewish roles, especially outwardly Jewish women. I, it seems to me that almost 100% of the time, Jewish women characters are played by not Jewish women. And do I think that you have to be the part that you're playing? 100% no. But as a marginal, as a minority that is not treated like a minority, but is very much a minority, and it's odd that it's not a priority with the world at, at large or show business in general. That's all. And then people go, well, Jews run Hollywood. Jews don't run Hollywood. Jews created Hollywood because they were not allowed in other businesses. So they made one up and it became incredibly successful. <laughs> if you didn't want us to run Hollywood, you should have let us buy land. We could have been all been farmers, but you didn't. That's right. So now we have Hollywood. So listen, uh, as we know from, <laughs> this is going to be a terrible analogy. You know, even the worst studio notes, those boundaries make you create something even better often. Well, the boundaries given by, that's why, that's why oppressed peoples, people who have been in slavery, the Holocaust and these things become incredibly creative and because they, it's a, they, it's a, a, a flower pushing through the pavement. There's, there are boundaries set. I think you were incredibly articulate about the question of Jews playing Jews because I'm a whole mix of gray area. I think one thing one day and something the other day. I just played a Jewish role, and I'm sure the fact that I'm Jewish helped me get the role. Yep. I'm a beneficiary of— Stoppard rounded up all the Jews on Broadway. <laughs> like I know other Jewish plays that couldn't move forward because— all the Jews were rounded up. <laughs> and yet only the best. Ironically. <laughs> well said. Even within our own play, though, there also were questions. Certain roles uh, were Jewish played by non-Jewish actors. And that was an issue there. And so I, and I feel, and I also worry about Jews. Only Jews can play Jews is a short distance from Jews can only play Jews. Ro so I, that's exactly right. So that's why it's like, 
it's like um, with Kat, listen, I'm not comparing myself with Kaepernick taking a knee at all, but in that way that the right refuses to listen to the simple reason he says he's kneeling and just makes it about he's disrespecting the military, no matter how much he says, no, 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 I learned this from the military. They fought for this right for us. You know, um, they can't hear that because that doesn't go with their narrative. They have to go, he's disrespecting the military. And so um, in that way, I feel like people take what I say and, and then they go, TMZ goes up to Tony Shalhoub. Sarah Silverman thinks only Jews should play Jews. What do you oh think? And I love him to pieces. And I think he said like, well, I just think actors are actors. And I agree. That's it's like totally taken to extremes, you know? That's why I try to like only say my piece on my podcast because it's like documented there and it's not an interview where they can change it or, you know, like- It's not a great era for nuance. And that must be incredibly difficult so, to, to, to in that context, to be a stand-up comedian. Well, I have a, listen, I've got a movie coming out where I'm finally, I get to play a Jewish, a real life Jewish woman. That real life Jewish woman, his brother is Leonard Bernstein, played by Bradley Cooper. First of all, he's fucking brilliant in it. He's his whole life was around it. He worked with the Bernsteins who wanted him to play it, and Spielberg who asked him to play it. And he's unbelievable in it. Is every part of it just becomes him. But I know I'll get shit for it. But on the end of the day, am I supposed to say no to a role that I earned play, you know, playing a real life Jewish woman? No, I'm not gonna do that. But there will be so many people excited to go, look what you did. Yeah, I played a Jewish woman in a in a outwardly Jewish, fairly outwardly. Well, yeah, they will be completely off the mark. If that happens, that there I, that holds no water with me. I'm expecting it, but it's that's fine. I mean, like I can only just the truth is actually a real thing in my life. <laughs> you know, it's just it it might not be in others, but I can't control that. Also, I say things and then go, well, I don't know, maybe not. you know. I mean, look, I'm I'm not a. I don't have to backtrack and make sure what I said is still right in my mind. I, I'm allowed to change it, but I also still feel what I said is what is true, which is what I have noticed is in this time when it's so important that that minorities are represented authentically, it is not the case for Jews. And it's indicative of so often how Jews are seen as, as unearned powerful. Right. But I want to talk about the real oppressed minority. Uh, for a second. I want to talk about comedians. Um, <laughs> it, it seems to me that there's something really interesting happening, uh, which is you and, and a, a very small other group of, of other comedians who sort of started out by being really kind of funny and hilarious and, and breaking boundaries are kind of evolving into something that's different. That's still very funny, but watching your latest special, it seemed to me like it, it was almost borderline the role that Judaism has reserved for like prophets in, in the olden days. It, it was much more about truth than it was about just delivering the punchline. It, it, do you feel that? Is that part of the natural evolution? Like, okay, I told you the jokes, but now I actually have something larger and more pressing to say. I don't really look ever at the big, I mean, in terms of my own trajectory, I never really stood outside of it and looked at a big picture or tried to see. I never planned the future or like say, I want to do this. I should, but I I just seem to like just stumble through whatever. I'm just seeing the dots. I'm just in it in the, in the micro and I don't really see the macro, you know. 
Really, does it not feel different writing writing a special now than it did for, let's say, Jesus is Magic? Are, are you not feeling like, okay, well, now I've proven everything that I had to prove. I'm a star. I could say these things. Now I actually want to talk. That's how she talks, I will tell you, off off camera. And <laughs> she does say I'm a star and I can do whatever I want to do. That's right. That kind of thing. A lot. Well, no, I mean, like, I mean, they're, they're, you want to stay relevant and stuff, but it's, I learned after Jesus is Magic when I just, like, didn't know who I was or what I, like, after like putting that together from like the best of everything I had done in my first, you know, 10 years in comedy. And then moving on from that was like, I had to really learn that you have to start back again at zero and eat shit on stage all over again. Only now people know who you are and come to see you and are disappointed by <laughs> you trying out new material and eating shit. Uh-huh. But it, they come that's with expectations. The, that's actually, in my view, the bravery of it. Right. Don't play your you hits. Know, I mean, and I learned, I mean, watching Chris Rock come into the cellar and like, as soon as they say his name, the audience goes crazy. It's like five minutes of screaming. And then finally it dies down and he does... 20 minutes of just trying new shit. That's, you know, maybe one or two things. There's something to it. And like, it's so brave to be able to go, I'm probably going to totally disappoint this audience. I'm not going to do any of the jokes that they love or know. And I'm going to start over and see who I am now and what might be funny. And, and like, that's like the scary part. Like I, my special just came out now when I do stand up, which I dread doing these days, but that's part of the process is, I'm just like, okay, I, uh, is this something, you know, and, and, but that being willing to be vulnerable and just try stuff. Is that like a rule of yours? Like once a special is out, like someone you love, which you can watch on HBO or HBO Max or Max or whatever it's called. Do you say, no, nah, I don't do any of that live? Honestly, once it's out, it's like, it's, it's not even in my brain anymore. Like I, I can't recall any of it. Like it, I don't have room. That's fascinating. I don't have room in my brain. So it's just like out because I go, I can't tour like I'm I'm terrible at crowd work. Sometimes I'm good. Sometimes I'm bad. I'm not like a Tig Notaro or a Todd Berry who could just do tours just of crowd work. And then like people go, well, subsidize the time with old material. And I'm like, I don't even I can't remember it. I can't. My brain won't recall it. I also feel like I have full on dementia not good. I'm hoping it's just menopause. I take every dementia quiz online because I also feel like I mean, it's Probably a lifetime of weed, but like, yeah, I I, uh, I have no short-term memory, but then I have a long-term memory. So I, I have a short-term memory later. It's also a very, a very Jewish thing. Just long-term Only memory. Only long-term memory. Yeah. Don't well, remember I what I had for breakfast. You. <laughs> right, but I remember the Holocaust. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can only remember the things that I can never forget. That's right. Oh, that's a good line. That's a, that's a great T-shirt. Yeah. You can have it. <laughs> See if I can monetize it. I was thinking about what you were saying before about how you are like so Jewish. But then there are a lot of people who probably would be like, what do you mean? She doesn't keep Passover. Like, in a way, you are like this thing that other people either like see themselves. Like, you're sort of like a cipher in a funny way for people who are either like, yes, she's my Jewish icon or like, what do you mean? That's my religious Jewish man voice. Yeah, I was like raised by atheists in New Hampshire and didn't know any other Jews other than us. Like my sister Susie says, we just thought being Jewish meant being Democrat because we were in New Hampshire and that's how we were different. (laughs) But then she became a rabbi, you know. And moved to Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, Susie just, I don't know what you did, but Susie just said on our sister's chain, like, I love Josh Molina. And she would never order you a pizza on Passover, just just making sure. No, no. 
Susan Silverman would never do that. You're probably nicer to her about her observance than you are to me. I am because she's my Susie. Yeah, fair enough. I understand. Oh, we have to talk about diarrhea, of course. (laughs) Yeah. I was thrilled that you built on in your special one of my favorite tweets of yours ever that I had written to you about when you first tweeted. What was it? About swimming in a pool. And in the pool area, there is a sign, like a professionally made sign, and it says... If you have diarrhea or have had diarrhea in the past two weeks, you are not permitted in our pool. I mean, just say it, no Jews allowed. So that was maybe, to me, was the quintessentially maybe greatest tweet ever. And then I turn on your special, I'm like, she's, Building on it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Can I? All right, Kim, may I ask you a question as a Jew? Okay. Um, Have you ever gone 14 days with zero diarrhea? (laughs) That would be absurd. I know. That would be be, uh, considered a miracle. It's a stepping stone to a whole... Bit now, I was delighted. I was thrilled. I like. I held my. Oh yeah, that became a big long bit. But the, here's the fraudulent part. I really just glommed on to a conceit that Jews have terrible stomachs. But I mean, I will say I am queasy probably 17 times a day. That counts. But I don't. I'm not a diarrhea person. I think the context in which Josh, you read that tweet on our show is because there was this like news story we were talking about. It was like a study that like real scientists did that showed that, like, there was a proclivity in Ashkenazi Jews for, like, IBD, which is different from IBS. People wrote in to yell at us that that IBD is much more serious, very, very serious. It's like a funny stereotype, but are we playing into this idea of, like, feeble Jews who, like, can't drink milk? Yes. No, I think you're right. There's truth to it. But is it damaging to us as a people? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, that's why Hitler wanted to kill us all, because we're weak, right? And like... He was acting on behalf of the dairy lobby. We weren't. (laughs) You know, we can't be part of a very strong Aryan race because uh, we we are, you know... But, you know, this is pre-Israel. Israeli Jews are like, uh, you know, big, strong, tan... hey Gorgeous specimens. That's that's very true. And then in America, we're a little more like, as an ex-boyfriend of mine said, uh, human sneezes. <laughs> <laughs> a non-Jewish ex. Yeah. An actual anti-Semitic uh, ex. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do think it's interesting that we can like play with this idea of a stereotype like, that makes us look bad, but we still sort of like find something loving about it in there. Jews as a people are kind of like, women as a people in that this is going to be not a good take, but I'm going with it. We tend to diminish ourselves for survival's sake. That's very true. But I think with Jews, it works the opposite way because we're like, we seem so successful externally. So maybe we play up this like, but my stomach hurts. Like maybe we play into the sort of weakness so that Good and bad people don't feel threatened by Jews. Right, but there's literally nothing we can do that are going to make anti-Semites not hate us because we're just, we just absorb, like, we're just a perfect. You don't think they'll embrace us because of our... uh, No, they have diarrhea, you guys. (laughs) Come on. The KKK meeting. Hug me. Guys, come on, they have diarrhea. (laughs) 
It's like, look at this one. She jokes about the Holocaust and breakfast cereals. Maybe they're not all bad. Right. Oh, I'm one of the good ones. Yeah, I mean, so there's guilt in it, but at least I like s- explored it a little, like where I go, oh, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm selling out my culture for laughs, which is how I make money, which is so Jewish. But you are, of course, a beloved figure among Jews. I, yeah. I don't know how to not be good for the Jews. So you've, you've had moments in which you told jokes that were super funny, but a little too cutting. And you apologize. And I felt you actually sincerely felt you had crossed the line. I'm thinking mainly about the Britney Spears joke because I'm I'm also a, like Britney Spears fanatic. You're just like my brother-in-law. Does that happen? Like, are you sometimes <laughs> like you tell a joke? It's like, hey, it was funny. I just said the thing that was funny, and then like, oh wow, no, that is really fucking mean. I felt horrible. I mean, that that story, I remember that so well because I was coming off of doing a lot of roasts, and then I had hosted the MTV Movie Awards. And it was all roast stuff. And you're just murdering like all the people from the movies and everything. And then they hired me for this. And all I knew was that Britney Spears was opening and I was going on after her. I don't know how she did. I was nervous in the wings working, like practicing my jokes. All I knew was it's Britney Spears. She'll kill. And then I'll do these like roast jokes about her. It was like three minutes going on after her and then the show. And... I remember the next day, like on Google or whatever, like they had put out a statement like the Britney Spears people saying like she wasn't good because she saw Sarah's jokes during the run through and it broke her heart. And that isn't true. That's a lie, because I know for a fact that I didn't do any of those jokes that MTV, because it was live, they want me to just during the tech run through, they had me just go blah, 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 joke, 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 you know, just to, because they don't, they didn't want to be responsible for what I said. And they wanted me to say something that would get eyes, you know? So it behooves them either, no matter what happens. So then I went on, did the jokes after she went on, you know, but still it, she, it hurt her feelings. I, I have a very simple policy about apologizing. I apologize Every time I am sorry, and then I don't apologize when I'm not sorry. Like it. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Will you come back for Yom Kippur? Yeah. That's like Susie who calls me on Yom Kippur. That's when I know when Yom Kippur is because Susie will call me and be like, I'm sorry if I was cunty this year. You know, like, and I'm like, it's okay. You weren't. It never is. Cunty is an Aramaic word, just to, to be clear. <laughs> it appears in the tefillah. Do you, have, do you have a ritual for Yom Kippur? No, I don't know. I try I try to reflect on the year and... Uh... Do you apologize back to your sister? Oh, yeah, I should do that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so, so, so much. Thank you so much. All right. Well, unorthodox. I like this podcast. My dream. All right. Bye. Love you, Sarah. Thank, Thank you. you. Love you. excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? 
How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Hey, J. Crew. Ever wondered what the Rambam's handwriting actually looked like? Or what about the theological ruminations running through Sir Isaac Newton's head when that apple fell down on it? Did you know that in addition to building the walls of Jerusalem, Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent also wrote love poems? These and dozens of other amazing treasures are now available to view in 101 Treasures from the National Library of Israel, a stunning fine art volume richly illustrated with high-quality photographs of manuscripts, books, maps, posters, music, and more accompanied by stories about these significant works and the intriguing people behind them from one of my favorite places in the world, the National Library of Israel. The book, again, is 101 Treasures from the National Library of Israel, now available on Amazon. And also, on October 22nd, the National Library of Israel opens its new building, a stunning architectural feat where these and many other objects of our heritage and culture will be on display for you to experience firsthand. So make sure to include Jerusalem's newest destination in your travel plans. The National Library of Israel, your story, our story, and one of my favorite places in the world. Today, we are sharing another installment of our exploration into the collection of the National Library of Israel. And on today's dive into the archive, we are going all out or all in because we are talking to the library's head of collections, Dr. Raquel Eucalis, about one of the library's most prized items in its Middle East and Islam collection, the manuscripts of none other than Ahmed ibn Taymiyyah, one of the most influential thinkers in the entire history of Islam. Have a listen. Back in the 13th century, all the way in the north of Syria, there was a guy named Ahmed ibn Taymiyyah. And ibn Taymiyyah, well, he was often misunderstood. Because people think of Ibn Taymiyyah as someone who either was this staunch, resilient leader against all odds, if you liked him, or this crazy person who went around bashing wine bottles because Islamic law prohibits wine and was not afraid to rally up the masses and cause riots. And he was both. Ibn Taymiyyah was an Islamic scholar. He was well-known and really passionate about his work. But others didn't always love what he had to say. And so again, he did not make friends and he again got thrown into jail. But he himself said jail is a kind of sanctuary because people left him alone and he could write. 
the problem was when the Sultan got tired of his writing from jail and he took away his pen and paper. And that's when he lost it. I'm Leah Leibowitz, and welcome back to The Archive, an exploration of the National Library of Israel. I will again be guiding you across history and the globe through this library's truly amazing collection. Ahmed ibn Taymiyyah is one of the most influential thinkers in the entire history of Islam. He was an iconoclast, a polarizing figure who was true to his holy book and to what he knew was right, which, you know, got him thrown in jail from time to time. And depending on who you ask, you're going to get a different opinion on Ibn Taymiyyah, because his thought has had a massive intellectual influence on jihadist organizations like, oh, I don't know, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, you know, those little guys. And trust me, we're going to talk a lot more about Mr. Ibn Taymiyyah and what happened after he, quote unquote, lost it in jail in a moment. But before we get there, I need to explain a bit about how the National Library of Israel works. Because, well, what are nearly millennia-old Islamic manuscripts from one of the most influential thinkers in Islam doing here in the National Library of the Jewish State? Hi, my name is Raquel Euclides, and I'm head of collections at the National Library of Israel. Dr. Euclides is who we just heard talking about Ibn Taymiyyah and his jail time troubles. And as head of collections, she was the right person to ask about how the Middle East and Islam collection fits into the bigger picture of the library. The Islam collection gives us a window into the culture of our neighborhood and also, of course, the culture and history of the 20-plus percent Arab-Palestinian citizenry here in Israel. We're about to celebrate in 2024, 100 years of the Arabic and Islamic collection at the library that tells you the importance of collecting and studying Islam and Arabic goes all the way back to the really formative period of Zionism, that in order to build a full-fledged society, we have to have great institutions of learning and culture, and that Arabic and Islam has to be integral to this work. And Dr. Euclides knows a lot about the Islam collection. As an undergrad and later PhD student, she spent months and months in the library's archives doing research specifically on the intersection of Islam and Judaism. And back then, the library was, well, it was very different. It was outdated, creaky furniture, musty card catalogs, and dusty archival basements. It was a big balagan, as we say here, a big old mess. And a far cry from the modern, sleek library I was standing in the day I visited. Over the last six years, the National Library of Israel has undergone a massive, multi-million dollar physical transformation. The new campus is enormous, with millions of books and artifacts, and an absolutely gorgeous, completely sun-drenched interior, like the opposite of your typical library setup. But the real treat is on the outside. The library is in a Jerusalem neighborhood surrounded by beautiful green parks, right between the Knesset, Israel's Congress, and the Israel Museum, one of the country's most revered institutions. And the building is curved, flowing, carved into a sand-colored bowl that just opens towards the sky. It's truly beautiful. 
But before all of this, before the library's physical transformation ever even took place, honestly, Dr. Eucalys never imagined working at the library or at any library for that matter. Until one of her professors roped her in with what he described as the most exciting project of our time, the National Library's digital transformation. Over the last 10, 15 years, the library pivoted 180 degrees and said, today, when you open up your smartphone and you can access Wikipedia on Ibn Taymiyyah, what do you need a library for? And that caused this very interesting process of almost a uh, identity crisis among libraries around the world. And so the library has pivoted to becoming proactive and that we've done primarily through digital means, but also more and more to get out there, to bring the treasure of the library out into the open. And so we're in this exciting time. So with the help of librarians like Dr. Eucalys, the library has digitized much of their collection and are now disseminating it to the wider public, including those who may never step foot in the library itself. This is how we got to where we are now. You, all across the world, listening to a podcast about a Middle East and Islam collection whose artifacts are today housed in this revamped Jerusalem library. Combine all this, and we're led back to the famous-slash-infamous Ahmed ibn Taymiyyah. We're looking at a uh, smallish book, let's say a high-end paperback in American terms, it is bound in a greenish hue and in calligraphically gorgeous Arabic. Uh, what am I looking at? So you're looking at an anthology of three essays written by Ahmed Ibn Taymiyyah, who was one of the most interesting, colorful, problematic figures of medieval Islamic history. Ibn Taymiyyah was born in the 13th century in the north of Syria. And indeed, he would go on to become one of the leading intellectual figures of medieval Sunni Islam. Now, some of his rise was, maybe in part, due to his wine-bashing and rabble-rousing. Though it was also due to him being genuinely brilliant, someone who inspired those around him and who deeply understood the details of the human experience. He was a very astute reader of human psychology and the relationship between human psychology and religion. That's the subtle part of Ibn Taymiyyah that a lot of people don't know, even people who are proponents of him, that he was not afraid to come up with complex ideas where he would say, this is wrong, but because human beings might do it for sincere reasons, then it's okay. Today, those subtle aspects of Intemia have been whitewashed because people in the era of Facebook and Twitter, complexity, people don't like so much. They like the clear lines. Now, he wasn't a nice guy. He was not a fan of neither women nor Jews. So it's not that I don't see the complexities of his character, but what I always appreciate about Ibn Taymiyyah is that he spoke truth to power, no matter what the consequences. So like Dr. Eucalys, I, despite Ibn Taymiyyah's women-slash-Jew-hating, have come to appreciate this man's thought. A polemicist like myself, he was unafraid of standing up for what he believed in. And he was a first-rate thinker who always looked back to the wisdom of his holy book. The place where he really went head-to-head -head with the culture of his time was that he went out against visiting shrines. Medieval Islam was full of shrine visitation. 
And even Ibn Taymiyyah went after going to visit the Prophet Muhammad's shrine and his grave, especially if you do it for the wrong reasons. If it gets too close to praying to the Prophet Muhammad and not to God with uh, Prophet Muhammad as a kind of intercessor. And that was a complete taboo. He had no problem walking into one of the most beloved and precious set of rituals. And so again, he did not make friends and he again got thrown into jail. But he himself said jail is a kind of sanctuary because people left him alone and he could write. The problem was when the Sultan got tired of his writing from jail and he, the Sultan took away his pen and paper. And that's when he lost it. The stories told about him was that he was fine until they took away his pen and paper and then a few months later he died. And this is how we get to our manuscript. When he died, his students rushed into his jail cell and swept up what they say was thousands of pieces of paper. And they spent the next year sorting them into essays. And so we're looking at one of the examples of this extraordinary moment where the sheikh, the master dies. And now it's a question of, is his teachings going to be relegated to some dusty shelf in our vault or will it stay alive? And that's how this manuscript entered into the annals of history. So there are three essays here. One is on, is the world created or eternal? One is on prayer times, which is technical. And then there's one on love. And it's a very impassioned essay about the relationship between human love and divine love. Now, Ibn Taymiyyah writing about love, right? That kind of breaks the stereotype. Ibn Taymiyyah never married. So it's a very interesting deep dive into this complicated personality that breaks all these binaries. So thanks to Ibn Taymiyyah's students, today we all get to reap the benefits of his thought on divine love and on much, much more. And I mean we all, literally. Ibn Taymiyyah has had a huge impact on contemporary Islam, though in a quite extreme way. So Ibn Taymiyyah gets this complete revival starting in the 18th century, but really more and more in the 19th and 20th century. You have all over the Arab world into the radical Islamic movements like Al-Qaeda and Islamic Jihad. They see him as this great hero because Ibn Taymiyyah spoke truth to power. He wasn't afraid of crushing norms and breaking taboos in order to be loyal to the original texts of Islam. So fundamentalist strands of Islam have latched onto Ibn Taymiyyah as a Puritan of sorts, one who returned to the original sources to find the truths of their religion. But Dr. Euclid doesn't think we should disregard him because of how he's been co-opted by these extremists. Instead, she thinks that making his manuscripts digitally available is in fact a very Ibn Taymiyyah way of going back to the source itself. In my view, this manuscript and others are crucial for filling back in the color and content of Islam. That Islam in the hands of particular radical movements has become very thin and superficial. So much so that it's hard for non-Muslims to understand how extraordinarily rich and sophisticated and multivalent Islamic culture and civilization have been. But I do see that making these manuscripts readily available, it's part of that effort. 
From 13th century Syria to 21st century Jerusalem, from teacher to student, radical Islamists to radical librarians, and to new media disseminating it all, there was only one thing left to do. So can I ask you to read from the actual source and give us a little taste of this treasure? Sure. It starts as all essays start, invoking the name of God, the compassionate and merciful. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. He starts almost all his essays with a kind of question. And then he'll go into the Quranic passages about this subject. And then he'll move into his own views. That's a little snippet. Amazing. I'm Leah Leibowitz, signing off from the National Library of Israel. Until next time. Time for some mazel tovs. Let's get into the mausoleum. What's what's going on? <laughs> the mausoleum. Wow, that's good. Is that too dark? Oofa. No, like the mausoleum. It's like an Andy Cohen thing. It's fine. Speaking of Cohens, I have the mazel tov, to end all mazel tovs, to the greatest Cohen of all, ever, Edith, Isadora. Oh. What's her Hebrew name? Edith Dora. I was, I was trying to make it really straightforward for the Israelis. Edith. Isadora, Adit Dora Cohen the <laughs> First, the Great, on her second birthday, Mazaltov. Oh, Mazaltov. Well, that's so nice. Since you stole my thunder of Mazaltoving my own child, my only shout out is that I saw the funniest thing. I think someone shared it in our Facebook group. It is a tweet by someone named John Miller at Miller Stream. He writes, The real red pill is shopping carts were invented by a Jew named Sylvan Nathan Goldman to get people to buy far more food than they'll ever need or shelf stable goy slop <laughs> stuffed with preservatives when really you should be buying groceries in smaller batches that you can carry out. That led me down an amazing Wikipedia hole to Sylvan Nathan Goldman, who in, literally invented the shopping cart. He's amazing. He has a great Wikipedia. We'll drop it in the newsletter. A biopic waiting to be made. But can I say something? Like, I actually completely live by this logic. I never, ever, 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 never use shopping carts. I go to the grocery store every day. I only buy fresh things I could carry out. I believe in this. I think that's wonderful for you. I think highly unrealistic for most people. But he had this great idea. He was like a dry goods guy in Texas and in Oklahoma. And he was like, what if I could? we could convey all the things you need from one place to the other? And like all the prototypes he went through, it's like actually really fascinating. And then he sold it. Other inventions by Goldman include the grocery sacker the folding inter-office basket carrier, and the handy milk bottle rack. He totally had a type, right? He had an obsession. Here, (laughs) Goldman also invented the baggage cart. (laughs) Just like everything. Forget Einstein. Does the container store pay him royalties? (laughs) Can you imagine though Goldman in his later years like, oh guys, I have a brand new idea. It's like a shopping cart. (laughs) But it's like, dude, okay, we get it. When I die, put me in some sort of box. Right. (laughs) And lower me into the ground. (laughs) Inside another box. Just an idea off the top of my head. I also have a shout out to listener and theater guru Miriam Wiener, who wrote in to share her podcast, Theater Practice, where the conversation around Leopold's shot continues. All of you can check out her podcast, 
theater practice, wherever you're listening to this. This comes to us from Paula McConnell. On this auspicious date of 25 Tammuz 5783, I have been inducted into the Unorthodox Podcast Facebook group. It is also my very first Shabbos, having just visited the mikvah a couple of days ago. You guys were with me right from the very beginning when I was Jew-curious all the way through the classes to right now. I felt like I had a community and it was possible. And Liel, I got to tell you that the segment about rabbis arguing about kugel and cooking the pickle convinced me (laughs) I was with my people. Now, if you'll excuse me, I need to cook and listen to the podcast, of course. So mazels, mazels to Paula. Paula, welcome home and please find a Jewish food stuff that you absolutely despise as part of the uh, routine procedure. (laughs) Welcome, Paula. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Leah Leibovitz and Joshua Molina. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Daron Rusquet, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo and merch is designed by Jenny Rosbrook. Our theme music is by Golem. And our news and mailbox scenes are by Steve Barton. That version of Video Killed the Radio Star featuring Sarah Silverman was by Walk Off the Earth. Get your unorthodox merch at tabletstudios.com. Tell us all your thoughts on lab-grown meat, Sarah Silverman, Islamism, <laughs> and more. <laughs> Barbie, the term mausoleum. Klaus Barbie, anything really. Okay, email us at unorthodoxhatback.com or leave a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. That's it for this week. Shalom, friends. Record this. Okay. It's like the radio. Like the radio? He knows what's going on. It's like a radio, but on Spotify. But yeah, on your phone. It's like a radio, but on Spotify.